Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakopenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive in to today's episode. The US Fed held rates steady but flagged more tightening ahead. And markets finally caught on that the central bank is deadly serious about taming inflation. So, are we entering a new era of higher for longer interest rates? As Greg Kahneman and I mentioned before, when consensus forms in markets, it pays to listen to your inner contrarian. Yes, rising bond yields do suggest investors are more confident inflation can return to target without a sharp slowdown. But how confident should investors really be? As Milton Friedman once said, it takes time for inflation to be cured and pleasant side effects of the cure are unavoidable. What's not priced in? The extent of those side effects. Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of What's Not Priced In. It's obviously a little uh, different setup today. I'm I'm joining Greg remotely. I'm not at the at the office as I usually am, and that's because I have finally caught COVID for the very first time. But um, I'm all good. Uh, Greg, I hope you're feeling better than me, and uh, welcome. Congratulations! To episode. <laughs> yeah, I finally made it. Thanks, Kirill. Yeah, well, everyone's everyone's going to get it at some point. Can you believe yeah. they shut down the country for it? But anyway, yeah, well, yeah, I think yeah, everyone, everyone might, of my friends is so, it seems to be getting it. So there's definitely another wave, but yeah, the mood is definitely different now than it was two years ago. But <laughs> that's for sure. This, and yeah. uh, let's be th- let's be thankful for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, this isn't a, this isn't a COVID special, so um, we'll definitely talk about uh, the latest moves in markets and obviously the biggest. Uh, Biggest thing this week has been the the Fed decision. Obviously, uh, no surprises there. The Fed did hold hold rates like most of us expected. Uh, interestingly, there were twelve officials that did pencil in uh, one more hike for, for for the year. Seven are ready to sort of pause until the year is done. Uh, and the median participant forecast is that there will be two rate cuts in twenty twenty four. So, Greg. What, what do you make of it, and what do you make of the of the market moves in response? Yeah, I thought it was all pretty interesting. So the the actual uh, headline wasn't much different to to that expected. Obviously, the the Fed kept rates on hold and uh, held out the likelihood that there you know could possibly be one more one more rate hike this year, uh, and then obviously probably the biggest change was that they increase their GDP um, growth projections mm-hmm. and on the back of that uh, pulled back on their expectations for rate cuts in in 2024 and I think that's what the market was responding to I think one of the the more interesting things uh, was that you know this and we talked about this last week that the higher for longer narrative is now getting baked into prices and I think that was just another layer of that happened today mm-hmm. uh, so um, the interesting price action, though, was that the the Nasdaq, for example, really got spooked by that and sold off. But if you're thinking that higher for longer was the reason for the Nasdaq's fall, then you didn't see a big move at the long end of the mm. the yield curve. So the ten year bond yield didn't really move higher, and gold prices didn't fall either. And if you're thinking higher for longer, then I would expect gold to have been quite sensitive to that move. So if I'm trying to rationalize 
those different moves, then I'm sort of thinking, okay, and and to sort of put some context around this, the Fed is nearly always wrong in terms of its longer term projections and wrong at turning points. And that's not like a criticism of the Fed. That's just a criticism of of the difficulty of long-term forecasting. You know, it's it's very difficult to get to get that right. And especially for a, a effectively a political organization that is incentivized to paint a very narrow consensus picture all the time. So they're trying to paint a picture of a soft landing or a no landing scenario. But if you look back in 2007, at the last time, just before the markets cracked lower, the Fed was projecting uh, higher inflation or persistent inflation, Mm -hmm. uh, higher interest rates, just before they had to cut and the economy fell out of bed. Not suggesting we're in the same situation as a, as a looming credit crisis uh, that we had in 2008, but I am suggesting that the market or the economy is probably going to slow a lot more than what the Fed expects in the next six to 12 months. So, and I think that's where the you can interpret the bond market and the gold market is saying, okay, if you guys are going to keep interest rates higher for longer, Sure, the short end will move up Mm -hmm. to reflect that, but the long end of the curve is going to say, uh, actually, you're you're going to create a slowdown because of that and will probably bring about a reduction of interest rates sooner than you think. So in saying that, the market didn't necessarily price in interest rate cuts for next year. It's starting to pull them out, which I think... um, is fair enough because the Fed is adamant that they're going to slow the economy in order to get inflation back to 2%. And that was, to me, the sort of key takeaway from Powell's speech is that he said, we need to slow the economy to get inflation back down to 2%. Uh, a slower economy means lower company earnings, mm-hmm. uh, and it really doesn't justify the high earnings multiples that we're seeing for many companies in the S&P 500. So, um, yeah, that was my, uh, I guess that was my brief interpretation of, uh, uh, of the FOMC meeting. And obviously our market has responded to that negativity today. I think we're recording this around midday mm-hmm. or just after lunch on Thursday and our market's down quite heavily, uh, the banks especially. Um, so, yeah, I mean, clearly I think the market is starting to think the Fed is serious about keeping rates higher for longer. The Fed is serious about getting inflation back down to where it needs to be. And it is serious about causing an economic slowdown in order to achieve that. Now, whether it is pretending that it's not going to cause an economic slowdown by by keeping these projections into 2024 GDP growth predictions pretty rosy or not, who knows? Maybe they actually believe it. Um, but and we can have a look at this in a minute, but some of the leading economic uh, indexes and indicators are suggesting that a slowdown is going to be quite sharp and and possibly imminent. So, um, yeah, that's the takeaway, the key takeaway. Yeah, yeah thanks. And I think with uh, with our own Reserve Bank, we've also this week we've got they released their latest uh, meeting minutes. Obviously, they also um, kept their rates unchanged. I think the the language sort of did change a little bit in the meeting. I think the last few times that they held rates steady, they did say it was a balanced decision. It was sort of a close call between hiking by 25 basis points or not. I think in this one, the language sort of changed a little bit in that the decision to hold was a much stronger one. So that they, they felt like it was a much easier decision to hold rates. 
where they are now and just sort of wait and see where things go from here. And obviously, they we like to say on, on this podcast that monetary policy acts with a lag. Uh, and I think in the, the recent statements and meeting minutes, that's sort of the message that the Reserve Bank has been saying internally as well, that they sort of don't want to push things too much because they still feel that the, the full brunt of the monetary policy hasn't yet been felt in the economy. And I think there was an interesting thing. We sort of like to point out the how much the Aussie households have been struggling. I think uh, the Reserve Bank in its meeting minutes noted that uh, the average outstanding mortgage rate in Australia is now higher than in several other peer economies. And that's despite the fact that the policy rate in Australia is somewhat lower than other advanced economies. And that does sort of sit, it implies, and I think we've mentioned this before, Australia is a little bit different in, in that we really do feel the rise in interest rates much more than other economies like the US and the UK. And that's because of the variable interest rates. And speaking of the mortgage rates, uh, yep. the Reserve Bank did say that scheduled mortgage payments rose to 9.7% of household disposable income in July. And that's, again, another record. And the Reserve Bank does think that this will actually go higher uh, in the months ahead. So things are not really looking that great and the economy is definitely slowing down. Yeah, and, and as we sort of speak, spend a bit of time talking about last week is that we are towards the end of the the fiscal stimulus from the from the covid uh i guess um all the benefits that the government bestowed upon uh households from from covid we're sort of end getting towards the end of that now and you've seen that uh, in households running down uh their savings so i think someone left a, a comment on the youtube page under our episode last week asking about the effect of fiscal policy on monetary policy. And I think the, the, the clear message there is that monetary policy, the tightening has been stunted somewhat from the stimulus from the fiscal side. And my argument is in the next three to six months, you're going to see as the fiscal side stimulus uh, moves away, the real tightening is going to bite on the on the monetary uh, the monetary side, which is where I'm coming from. With the, I think you'll see rates falling and the and, and economy slowing faster than what uh, the markets are currently expecting. And I, I mentioned before uh, the uh, leading economic mm-hmm. indicators, and I think it's worth just showing uh, the yesterday the Westpac leading economic indicator or leading index came out. Uh, for the Aussie market. And I'll just read from uh, the press release here just to give you a sense of of what it means. Uh, It says, the six-month annualised growth rate in the Westpac Melbourne Institute leading index, which indicates the likely pace of economic activity relative to trend three to nine months into the future, rose slightly to minus 0.5% in August from minus 0.56% in July. So it's still uh, still negative, but just slightly less so. The economy continues to move through an extended period of weakness. Uh, despite another slight improvement this month, the leading index growth rate continues to track in negative territory, the measure having now been below zero for just over a year. Negative prints for the index indicate the economy is likely to grow at a below trend pace. This string of negative prints began in August last year accurately foreshadowed the sudden slowdown in the economy in 2023. 
Over the March and the June quarters, the economy has expanded at a 1.6% annualized pace, which is well below trend growth, which is closer to 3%. So essentially, this uh, leading index is, is saying not necessarily that we're going into recession, but the economy will continue to grow below trend, uh, which brings us to uh, inflation. Now, um, I will get onto that in a minute, but I'll just while we're on uh, leading indexes, I thought we'd just show the more pronounced one. This is the uh, conference board, uh, a key US leading economic index indicator. This is from, uh, this is only showing to the end of July. So this is from a press release in August and they haven't released one for September as yet. But you can see here that the leading economic index has continued to fall quite sharply. Um, and it's getting towards these points here where you saw recession in 2001. Clearly, it was very uh, big in 2008, but it was starting to fall in 2007. And even at this period in 2007, uh, sorry, um, 2008, up until here, everyone was uh, ignorant of the fact that the US economy was in recession. I don't think the recession was actually declared until well after. Um, so we are now into that sort of realm as well. Yet GDP growth in the US is continuing to be quite strong. So I'll go back to those comments about fiscal stimulus. And I think the fiscal measures in the US were just as strong or if not stronger than in Australia. And those, me those measures are in the same situation where they're washing through the US economy. Uh, household saving rates are now at very low levels, so there isn't a lot more to go. Uh, and we talked a couple of episodes ago about the San Francisco Fred and Fed mm -hmm. and the studies that they've done showing that those, uh, I guess, buffers would be run down by the end of this month. Um, so we are not far away from potentially seeing this turn down. Um, and, and closing this gap somewhat with the economic indicators. Now, going back to Australia, uh, or, or this this comment here in the um, the Westpac leading in indicators suggesting that we're going to get below trend growth for another another couple of quarters, sort of takes me to the point about inflation. And everyone's talking about you know inflation is going to be sticky. Uh, we've got rising energy prices uh, that are feeding that narrative as well because. Everyone knows that rising energy prices are passed on and, and you know, that causes inflation. And I, I disagree with that. I think what you need to focus on is the monetary side of things. And I had a look today. And if you look at the, uh, the key indicators of monetary aggregates that the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia publish. So I, I just looked at the last six months of these releases because um, obviously, the last twelve months in the in the prior or the first six months of, of the last twelve months, monetary growth was still quite strong. So, if you strip that out and you just look at the last six months and annualize it, you've got broad money uh, annualized at two percent, and you've got M three annualized at two percent as well. So, the, the monetary aggregates are coming down. You've got economic growth below trend and below trend economic growth suggests that you're not going to get an inflationary breakout. Um, and talking about higher energy prices and whether that will lead to inflation, I guess it depends on whether you think companies have the pricing power to pass that on. And in some cases, they obviously do, but in many cases, they probably don't. So you're going to see 
a lot of this higher energy or higher cost absorbed into margins and things like that, which again is going to be a headwind for for the market. So, and that was you know my comment there: higher energy prices absorb liquidity in dollars in a tightening monetary environment. If, for example, the Reserve Bank was to turn around and start cutting interest rates uh, quite aggressively, then I would expect you know inflation expectations to pick up. But while they're staying quite tight, and you're seeing these indications of uh, you know monetary aggregates coming down, then that suggests that there's going to be bites somewhere in the economy, and that will more than likely be uh, in company margins. And just to show you again. Uh, these monetary aggregates. This is from the latest Reserve Bank uh, data pack. Um, you've got M3 falling quite sharply. Uh, currency, not huge sort of follower of that. Um, so even though that's negative, I don't think that really means a great deal. But you've got uh, M3 coming down at 4% annually. As I said, if you take the last six months and annualize that, it's down at 2%. And then if we look at the credit and broad money growth, they're coming down pretty sharply as well from uh, from that that uh, that bounce higher so yeah that just sort of tells me that all these things are looking at like even though the market's looking over here saying oh is inflation going to be sticky is higher mm-hmm. energy prices going to cause another surge in inflation if you look over there or over here where I'm looking all the evidence suggests that things are slowing down and you need to be pretty conscious of that uh, especially when it comes to stock selection. Uh, and how you're thinking about portfolios and all that sort of stuff is that we are potentially going into an environment where um, cyclical companies um, could be under pressure again if they're overvalued. Um, and you know, just looking at today, the financials have taken a taken a decent hit. The big banks are under pressure uh, because the economy is slowing. So, and and you know, some of those banks, especially Commonwealth Bank, which we've pointed out in past episodes priced for very, very good uh, economic times. And, and you know, I'm not suggesting we're going into recession and the bond market isn't priced to suggest that we're going into recession. Um, but like the leading indicator said, below trend growth for the next couple of quarters, um, that's probably not going to be conducive to, you know, a lot of companies and the, the growth multiples that they're on. Yeah. And I th- I'm really, I'm really glad that you sort of brought up those um, aggregate money charts because I was doing some some uh, reading last night. I was reading uh, Milton Friedman's um, "Free to Choose." It's one of his uh, more more popular works, and uh, there was a chapter on curing inflation. And uh, I wanted maybe to share some some of his wisdom with you because I think it, it directly relates to some of the charts and some what, what you were saying about the the monetary supply. Um, and I think the the main takeaway was that, and this is his quote, uh, many phenomena can produce temporary fluctuations in the rate of inflation, but they can have lasting effects only insofar as they affect the rate of monetary growth. Um, and I think he sort of then goes on to reiterate, what matters for inflation is the quantity of money per unit of output. But as a practical matter, changes in output are dwarfed by changes in the quantity of money. Productivity is a bit player for inflation, money, is center stage. Well, I guess you'd expect that from the man who said, uh, what do you say? Inflation is always and everywhere a yep. monetary phenomenon. Uh, yep. But yeah, look, I, I think to me it makes intuitive sense that if you've got, and it's a very difficult uh, concept to put into the real world because 
Um, Australia is not a closed economy. There's, you know, there's money flows coming from from everywhere. But just if you look at, and last week we showed the US monetary aggregates and they're falling even more sharply and, and in negative territory. Australia is falling quite sharply. Like it's telling me that there's a story of there's this, there's this slowdown happening. Um, and if you just look in your own wallet, there's less dollars in there than there used to be. Um, so, you know, that to me, that is just a, a, a common sense way to look at um, look at things. And I think often in in mainstream media, you get these narratives that just seem to get a little bit of uh, traction. And one of those is oil prices up, therefore yeah. it's going to be inflationary. And and I just and I'm not sure whether people have really put a lot of thought into how that necessarily works. Yes, it's inflationary if there is uh, uh, an increase in in money to uh, absorb and allow those costs to be fed on in, into the system. So this is where and this is why in in cases where there's monetary tightening, higher oil, oil prices can actually lead to recession. Um, in in terms of that is the cause of recession. And in many ways, you'd probably argue that 2008 uh, had a lot to do with that. I think back in the uh, back then, oil prices went to over $150 a barrel. They sort of spiked into that recession. Um, but clearly, if, if companies can't pass that on, then they've got to absorb that hit. And then it gets to a point where demand, demand just goes away because th- there's not enough demand at those prices and, and the demand has to drop in order for the, for the price to drop. So... Um, a different situation now. I think uh, oil and energy uh, is 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 a very different situation than what it was back in in two thousand and eight. Uh, we've had big restrictions on um, new supply or, or finding new supply. Politicians think that windmills and solar panels are going to power our economy. Um, we don't need to look for any anything else. I think you know Victoria's banned uh, exploration for new sources of gas even though gas is absolutely essential to firm uh, intermittent renewables. So there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on in the world of, uh, in the world of energy, which I think is going to underpin higher energy prices for some time. But if we just take a look at uh, the, some of these energy prices lately, I think you know, you'd probably say a reasonable person would suggest that it might be time just to sort of settle down a little bit um, on the energy front. Like if I look at... This is the Brent crude price. It's done really well. We showed this last week. It's it's sort of moving out of this long-term downtrend, which I think is really bullish. But it did get into this overbought uh, situation a couple of weeks ago, and it's only just starting to come out of that now. So we, we did see a bit of a, a pullback last night. Uh, wouldn't be surprised to see this sort of correct, uh, purely because the amount of the amount of analysts I've seen coming out in the past few days saying oil is going to $100 a barrel and more, um, which I completely agree with, by the way. But just in the short term, as soon as everyone starts saying that, you think, okay, well, who's left to buy this and push it over 100 bucks? So I wouldn't be surprised to see this correct a little bit. Um, so if you don't have energy in your portfolio, maybe just, you know, what I always tell my subscribers, and I've been in these energy stocks since 2021, Buy on the dips. You know, you can you can lighten up on these rallies when everyone's getting excited, but on any sort of correction or dip, um, you can sort of add back to it. But if we're talking about crazy, the uranium ETF, this is the mm-hmm. Better Shares Global Uranium ETF. 
just gone completely off the charts in the last few weeks uh, or month or so. Uh, this is a, a an ETF that I've had on the watch list. I sort of got onto it a little bit too late and I was hesitant to buy into it. Um, and I said, let's wait for a pullback around here. Um, or it might have even been around here. I can't remember. But it didn't. The pullback didn't happen. Um, it just kept going up and up and up. And here you can see at one point the um, the RSI got to over 90, which mm -hmm. is, you know, it, it's a very, very overbought level. This is clearly going to come back down. Um, so again, I just sort of say exercise patience and, and wait for a good opportunity to buy back in. Um, but, you know, the, the whole reason behind the uranium price spike is a is a sound one. You know, the... Mm -hmm. the Global policies around the world are, um, for net zero is suggesting that there is absolutely no way renewables are going to do the job. And if you want to get to net zero in a, in a low or zero emissions way, nuclear must be a part of that, that equation. Um, Chris Bowen in Australia is, is doing his best to pretend that's not going to happen and, and um, assuming that there's other ways we can get there. But I, I think over time, common sense will have to prevail. It's happening in other parts of the world, and this is why you're seeing, you know, everyone wanting wanting to get into uranium stocks because it's sort of dawning on people that this is uh, a trend that's not going away. So, uh, yeah, I would just say exercise patience. There'll be time to buy into this trend because I think it's got uh, years uh, years ahead of it. Yeah, and just while I'm on these charts, I just wanted to show quickly ASX 200. We've been talking about in recent. Uh, in recent weeks and months, how it's just, you know, one week up, next week down, one week up, next week down. This is starting to narrow into a sort of, uh, a, 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 I guess, a break point. So uh, it either breaks higher or breaks lower. Doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a, a major move either way, but I think, you know, we're getting to that point where the constant weekly ups and downs, I think the market is going to decide one way, there are, one way or the other um, which way it should go. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's 100% going to be down, but based on what we've just talked about in terms of leading economic indicators, the direction of the, the economy and the determination of central banks to keep rates higher and the fact that fiscal is starting to become less and less of a, a source of demand and a source of uh, economic growth. And, uh, you know, to me, it just makes sense that the next move's um, going to be lower. Yeah. Well, I think maybe I wanted to just maybe add about it, uh, the rise in energy prices. I think uh, earlier this week, we also, um, there was a report that uh, the average petrol prices in Australia, I think the average price hit a record peak. And I think it was like 2.29 a litre. So it's definitely very expensive at the Bowser. And I think that's partly also under investment. We don't really have that many refineries here in Australia. And that sort of uh, pushes the costs up. So even if uh, the price of oil even comes down, it doesn't necessarily mean that petrol prices in Australia will also come down sharply. It's just we just don't have that many refineries, so we'll just have to import, and that that's pricing. So that's just another sort of theme that you've been talking about with your um, net zero stuff. Uh, and also, I think maybe just there's a bit of a parallel. I think yeah, I can't remember whether we. Yeah, keep going, keep going. I think um, my oh, sorry. Slow, um, yeah. I was just going to say, 
we're on a slight a slight delay, which always makes things interesting. But no, I was just going to say, I can't remember whether we mentioned it here a couple of weeks ago, but Australia does import uh, over, I think, over 75% of its uh, refined petroleum. And we've been closing uh, our refineries over the past few years. So we've only got two in the country. Uh, no one in the developed world, at least, is building any more because when you have policies and policymakers that tell uh, that tell you that there's going to be no need for petrol cars in the next ten years. Um, who's going to spend multi billions on a on a new refinery? It's not going to happen. So all these incentives are just way out of whack. And the developing nations that are building the capacity, obviously they're building capacity for their own economies. And obviously, you know, we we are exporting. I think our exports come from like Korea and and Singapore and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we're not we're not creating new capacity. And if you look at the UK, I think Rishi Sunak just said we're pushing back our, um, you know, the legislation that said that petrol cars needed to be banned by, what was it, 2030, 2035, pushing them back uh, purely because it's just it's just crazy. You, you're not going to create that transition in, in that short space of time. So this goes back to the comment before we're going to need fossil fuels for a lot longer than what most people expect and probably what the market has been has been thinking. Yeah. Well, and I think I was just to to wrap up the discussion of energy. I think there there are definitely also parallels with the recent uranium rally and uh, the recent rally we had in lithium. Obviously, lithium is a major component in EVs and EVs are, is, a, is a mega trend. I think uranium is obviously going to be very important yep. down the future. So both... I think lithium a few years ago did a massive run up in price and then obviously percolated to all of the explorers and developers running up in price. But then I think this year, obviously, we've had a bit of a bear market in lithium. Both the spot price of lithium fell and a lot of uh, lithium hopefuls also crashed and burned. So there's just a bit of parallels there for for uranium. Just because the longer term view is very positive doesn't mean that in the short, short term, it's always going to be up and up and up. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only difference I would suggest there is that um, there's just not the there's just not the supply yeah. uh, of 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 uranium, and there needs to be more of it uh, more of it mined uh, to build up these strategic supplies because they've been run down uh, for so long. But if we're talking very long term, um, the Uranium and nuclear is such an efficient form of energy is that you don't actually need a great deal of it to power huge economies. And and, and um, so from that perspective, I don't think there's any issue uh, with supply. And the other thing with uranium to consider is that the actual spot price of uranium is not a huge consideration for uh, utilities that are running nuclear reactors. The price of the fuel is actually quite small in relation to the rest of the running costs. So you could get a doubling in price and it wouldn't really affect, um, it wouldn't affect demand so much and it wouldn't affect uh, utilities uh, outlook on whether they should um, keep stocking or, or whatever it is, because it is, it is such a small input to the overall, um, the overall cost of running a, a, a nuclear power plant, that it's not a huge consideration. Whereas prices, I think, for, say, oil and coal and gas, uh, probably a, a fair bit more sensitive on the on the demand side. Yeah, yeah. And I think also maybe um, 
uh, I just wanted to maybe to put one more final quote from from Friedman to to wrap up the discussion on inflation. So I think he had um, obviously said uh, the chapter was titled "What's What's the Cure for Inflation?" and given that the the supply of money is the, basically the determining factor of inflation, the only way you can really cure inflation is to is to quell the the supply of money. and uh, And he says here. The cure for inflation is simple to state but hard to implement. Just as an excessive increase in the quantity of money is the one and only important cause of inflation, so reduction in the rate of monetary growth is the one and only cure for inflation. The problem is not one of knowing what to do. That is easy enough. Government must increase the quantity of money less rapidly. The problem is to have the political will to take the measures necessary. Once the inflationary disease is in an advanced state, the cure takes a long time and has painful side effects. Um, so I think that's an interesting quote there because number one, uh, it takes time for inflation to be cured. It has unpleasant side effects. And I think the final one is that uh, it does take a bit of will from governments and I think central banks to to reduce the money supply and it because it has, uh, it, it has negative side effects and it, it takes a bit of a strong strong personality to pull that off. Absolutely. And I think that's what the market's starting to realise with Jay Powell now is that he he has been saying for quite some time that, you know, they're determined to to get inflation back down. Yet the market is constantly priced in these interest rate cuts coming further down the track. I think initially it was coming in 2023 sometime and it was coming in 2024. But I think what the market has constantly underestimated is this this effective fiscal that's that's um, thwarting monetary policy's ability to do its job, and the unpleasant side effect is recession, um, and that's always difficult for uh, central bankers and politicians to, um, to to deal with because they're effectively recessions generally lead to changes in uh, changes in government. Um, so yeah, they're, they're certainly not uh, not popular. Um, but Jay Powell is is doing a pretty good job, I think, in making sure that the market is not going to preempt him in rate cuts, which to me suggests that he will cause a deeper slowdown than what the market is currently expecting, which will translate into lower share prices. Um, and look, you're already seeing that. Um, I've got some other charts here that I was, I was going to show before, but I'll just do it now. If we're, if we're looking at like a really cyclical industry, um, then travel and airlines is is one of them. And we've seen recently in Australia, Qantas uh, share price fall quite heavily. And that's coincided with a lot of well-deserved criticism over uh, its board and its former CEO, Alan Joyce, um, who, you know, if, if you look at how he run Qantas, then, you know, he's he's left it in a bit of a, you know, massive shambles, and um, I've been loving Joe Aston's uh, commentary on it in the uh, Financial Review. Absolutely savage, just you know, dropping truth bombs uh, relentlessly. And look, he's and this is the the power of good journalism. He he's almost single handedly got the market to look at at this situation. But I remember we were talking, uh, Kirill, in one of our earlier episodes of this, and I, and I can't remember whether it was around here or whether the, the share price had broken down here, but we highlighted uh, a fund manager's comments at the time who said, you know, he thinks that 
Qantas does a good buy here and Qantas is, you know, cheap and going higher. And we were saying at the time that that's, you know, crazy talk. And this was even before, and this had nothing to do with criticisms over the management or the board. This was really about the cycle and where Qantas was in the cycle. And it had benefited massively from the post-COVID openings. It obviously rallied really strongly. And I remember saying at the time, it looked like it was rolling over here. And that's clearly what's happened here. Now, a lot of that has got to do with this negative publicity that's come out about the company. But if you look at the American airlines, um, they're all in similar situations. So this is actually American Airlines. I think it came out with a profit warning a week ago or something. That peaked, all these all these guys peaked in July. So it peaked in July, massive correction since. This is Air Alaska Group. Uh, let's see, peaked in July, massive correction since. This is Avis Budget Group. So this is the car rental group. Um, obviously not as far down. This one peaked in July as well, um, corrected lower. Delta Airlines, let's see, peak in July, starting to correct sharply lower. FedEx is one of the few that's still sort of hanging in there in terms of being in a you know a nice upward trend still. But this uh, this uh, peak came in at sort of late July, early August. Uh, we've got JetBlue Airways here. Recent peak was in July. Really, really fallen off a cliff there, so it's not looking good. Uh, no, I don't know any of the individual uh situations of these companies that don't follow US airlines, but it's just interesting that all of them peaked in July and they've all fallen sharply since. So that's Southwest Airlines. This one is United. United peaked in July again, sharply fallen since. UPS, this is just a United Parcel Service. Peak in July, fallen sharply. Um, so that's all the US airlines. And if I go back to this oil price, uh, oil sort of bottomed at the end of June and started rallying. And I wonder if oil, the, the rise in oil price and obviously the effect on airlines because of their consumption of oil has had an impact on that. So you've got a combination of, um, you've got a combination of lower uh, demand because, you know, all this um, money from fiscal stimulus is starting to, is starting to, to wane. So, um, and then you've got higher costs in terms of higher oil prices. Goes back to my earlier comment: if there's enough money flowing around the economy, then airlines would be able to pass on those higher costs, and demand would remain the same, and the share prices wouldn't be falling out of bed. But the fact that the monetary aggregates are tightening, people don't have as much money in their wallet, means that uh, airlines might not be able to pass on those costs and need to start absorbing them, which is why those share prices are falling. Now, just the last thing I wanted to look at, the consumer discretionary indexes in both Australia and the US have looked pretty good. And this, again, comes back to this ongoing uh, money in the pockets that consumers and households are, are spending in terms of their savings. So this index, this uh, consumer discretionary index in Australia still looks pretty strong. I would point out it's dominated by West Farmers, so it, it is a little bit skewed. There's some companies that are under the pump, some that are doing quite well, uh, but this is still looking pretty good. So I'm looking to see whether this holds here or whether we turn back down. And the same in the US, this is the consumer discretionary uh, ETF, uh, also peaked in July, corrected lower high here, 
um, fallen sharply. This is a you know, Wednesday night session post the Fed, so that fell sharply there. So interesting, you're going to be keeping my eye on this this low here. If, if this index is rolling over, then that will, I guess, play into the, the comments about uh, weakening fiscal stimulus and then monetary policy standing on its own and, and, and being quite tight uh, that will have an effect on on the US economy moving forward. So, um, yeah, I think those those charts are quite interesting to give people a sense of where that really consumer cyclical and consumer sensitive industry is, is at at the moment. Yeah, and I think as we sort of mentioned at the start of the show, uh, mortgage repayments as a proportion of people's disposable income is, is going up and up. So that just means there's less money to spend on discretionary items and the Reserve Bank does think that that proportion of mortgage repayments to discretionary income is only going to go high from here because as we always like to say, monetary policy acts with a lag and there's still a bit of lag to go. So discretionary spending is probably going to get worse from here before it gets better. And that will um, put pressure on, on retail stocks. And I think just yesterday, the KMD brands uh, reported and uh, fell about 5% despite uh, last financial year, the, the sales, I think, were record high. But I think the market is always looking ahead. And it, in it, uh, I think full year 24 sales are softening and the market is getting a bit worried. That was uh, KMD brands. So what do they own? Kathmandu? Yep. What else is that? Are they? I think MacPacks are all of those outdoor type of uh, brands. But Kathmandu is right, their biggest okay. one. Yeah. Obviously, highly consumer discretionary and a, and a good good case in point. So you're going to get some stocks like your Wes Farmers that, you know, in many ways, Bunnings is almost a, uh, I would say, a consumer staple stock, but it's in the it's in the consumer discretionary index. But if you look at a lot of those retailers, some, the well-managed ones, are still doing quite well. They're obviously, you know, earning uh, or, or gaining the the dollars from the, uh, the households that are out there spending. Um, but I think just to labor the point that when uh, the savings are run down, it's going to be a little bit tougher for consumer discretionary players out there uh, in the latter half of this year. Yeah. And I think maybe just to, to, to wrap up and I think the, the biggest um, obviously theme of, of today is what's not priced in is the, maybe the greater threat of recession than the market thinks. I think um, in the reserve bank meeting minutes, uh, the bank did sort of say, did note that longer term yields, have risen recently and it, and it, the Reserve Bank said that this suggests investors had become more confident that inflation could return to target without a sharp slowing in the economy. Uh, so I think both the market and the Reserve Bank thinks that uh, it can pull off a, a slow landing. But I think as we've sort of shown here, it, the risk is still very high that the Reserve Bank won't pull it off both here and in the US and other advanced economies. And that's something that's maybe not as priced in as much as it should be. Yeah, if you go back and look at nearly every post-war recession in the US, it was always preceded by rising interest rates. So there's, I think investors have in their mind how they would like things to be, as opposed to how they generally turn out to be. And you know, one thing that we wanna to try to do here is, is try to give a real common sense how things are probably going to turn out to be view rather than uh, looking at anything through through rose-colored glasses. So, but I would say that if we do get a, a decent 
correction from here. Like for me, that would be a, a pretty good good buying opportunity for longer term uh, longer term investors because when I go through and look at a lot of the stocks in the in the indices, say the ASX three hundred, a lot of these stocks have already been knocked down considerably, and it's only the fact that capital has concentrated into some of the biggest names that is is masking a lot of these value opportunities that are sitting in the smaller end of the market. So uh, if you do get a, a, a good correction from here, like I think that would be an opportunity to really uh, to really look to, to invest longer term. You might be underwater for three to six months, but I think longer term, that would be a pretty, pretty good uh, opportunity to be to placing some money. If I'm right about the fact that inflation is going to fall, at least in the short term, interest rates will probably become less restrictive, which will offer some some support. Um, so it's not all doom and gloom, but I just think uh, in the shorter term, you probably need to be cognizant of the fact that we might see a bit of a, a correction, a deeper correction in the market. Yeah, and maybe maybe to sum up, I think it maybe some of the positives here is that it's sort of maybe slowly becoming more of a stock because market. There will be more opportunities there for the for the vigilant stock picker who stock picker who can pick out the the opportunities. So that's the positive. And if there are any opportunities, you'll find it here first. And what's not priced in, as you can see from from the Qantas example, Greg was there to call it a few months early. So. That's the benefit of listening to the to this show. So if you did like the episode, make sure to subscribe, like, and comment below. But Greg, I'm not sure if we're going to pull off this uh, this goodbye because there's a bit of a delay. But uh, thanks for joining me today, and I hope um, everyone has a great day. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next see time. Thanks for joining What's Not Priced In, your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by liking and subscribing and turn those post notifications so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends and new stocks. Thanks for your support. Hope to see you next week.